business class listeners, you're tuned into episode number 202 on Wisco Weekly. And on this episode, this will kick off the earnings calls for the next few weeks, where I will share with you bits and clips from companies that are in two funds, two virtual funds of mine, the Dedicated Lane Automobility and Infrastructure Fund and the Dedicated Lane Finance and Technology Fund. So for this episode, we will start off with highlights from the FOMC meeting that occurred towards the end of January, and then we will start to balance that out against the actual earnings calls of companies that are, again, in these two funds of dedicated lane. So on this particular episode, you will hear the earnings calls from PayPal, from Ally Financial, Tesla, and then as part two of this episode, which will occur right around the 30, 35 minute mark, then I want to read verbatim the letter to CEOs from CEO Larry Fink of BlackRock. So that will be in the second part of this episode. I will read his letter in its entirety. And of course, you can always visit the episode page to view all the links. Coming up then on Wisco Weekly for earnings calls, next episode that will cover earnings calls will include companies like Lithia Motors, Penske Auto Group, and a handful of others. And we'll keep going as all these earnings calls are coming up at the moment. Also coming up on Wisco Weekly over the next few weeks, you will hear from a couple guests of mine, one of which will be Patrice Onwuka of the Independent Women's Forum and Independent Women's Voice, where we get into some topics of women flourishing, or perhaps what are the barriers to women flourishing in our post-COVID economy. And following that, I have another great conversation, or I had another great conversation with my guest, who is the associate professor at Haverford College. Her name is Carola Binder, and she did this really, she's done some really great work, one of which was this paper on techno-populism. So that will be coming up here in the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned and be sure you are subscribed to the show. Now, let's get into these quarter four earnings, starting with Mr. Rather, Chair Jerome Powell. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. So let's start with Chair Powell discussing the labor participation rate. And so this is from the Wednesday, January 26th press conference after the last FOMC meeting. And here is Chair Powell on labor force participation. The improvements in labor market conditions have been widespread, including for workers at the lower end of the wage distribution, as well as for African-Americans and Hispanics. Labor demand remains historically strong. With constraints on labor supply, employers are having difficulties filling job openings 
and wages are rising at their fastest pace in many years. While labor force participation has edged up, it remains subdued, in part reflecting the aging of the population and retirements. This aging population that has since not returned to the labor force, this has baffled Powell, and you could argue it's baffled a lot of economists on how they can predict what the future economy looks like. We have no idea where these people are and if they will ever come back. And so there's always this looming threat of what happens if they don't come back. Well, like not even what if they don't come back. Where did they go? Because it's a very big aspect of this labor force participation rate. It's, it is the difference of effectively almost a full percentage point. We could effectively go from 3.7, 3.8, whatever we're at right now, just under 4%. We could get that right at about 3% with this aging workforce. Or conversely, if that older workforce, that older labor force does not return, then effectively, what if the normal unemployment rate is actually where it stands right now or closer to it? Before, in 2018, 19, right around there, we, we were under 2%. And that was the lowest that we've ever seen uh, the unemployment rate. It could be such that the normal rate for unemployment may actually be 3.2%, 3.4%, which means if that is the case, then we are indeed almost there. And effectively, effectively, that would take us to max employment. Victoria Guida of Politico chimed in to ask Chair Powell about this whole idea of max employment relative to inflation, relative to the hiking of the interest rates. Hi, Chair Powell. Um, I wanted to ask, you were talking about the health of the labor market, and I'm curious whether you would characterize where we're at right now as maximum employment, and also um, along those same lines, obviously uh, rate hikes on the table this year. Do you think that the Fed can raise rates, bring inflation under control without hurting jobs and wages? I would say, and this view is widely held on the committee, that both sides of the mandate are calling for us to move steadily away from the very highly accommodative policies we put in place during the challenging economic conditions that the economy faced earlier in the pandemic. And I, I would say that most FOMC participants agree that labor market conditions are consistent with maximum employment in the sense of the highest level of employment that is consistent with price stability. And that is, that is my personal view. The thing about the labor market right now is that there are, there are many millions of, of more job openings than there are unemployed people. So you ask whether we can, whether we can uh, uh, raise rates and, and move to less accommodative and even tight financial conditions without hurting the labor market. I think there's quite a bit of room to raise interest rates without threatening the labor market. So the highest level of employment relative to price stability is achievable even with an interest rate hike. I think this is a very telling statement of exactly where perhaps, as I mentioned earlier, the unemployment rate standing at around 3% 
may be the norm. And of course, there'll be deviations from there, but it's not going to be sub 2%, at least not until maybe the new generation, the Gen Y, and even the younger generation below that. What are they, Gen Z, I guess? Maybe even younger. I don't even know anymore. When they enter the workforce, maybe then we get to sub 2% again. But undoubtedly, the way moving forward, it seems to indicate that. According to Powell, as well as the committee, that the unemployment rate can achieve max employment, you can still achieve price stability, and you can still hike the rate. Now, let's pivot to company earnings now. And first up to bat is PayPal. Let's take a listen. Let's have a listen to Dan Shulman, the CEO of PayPal, as he discusses the 2022 forecasts. And let's let's just understand it. Here's Dan Shulman. Our forecast for 2022 is appropriately measured, giving given the difficult comps in the first half and an unpredictable macroeconomic environment. We're going to focus our energy on what we can control, including key product and go-to-market initiatives that will enable us to capture the numerous opportunities that are inherent in the secular shift to digital. At the same time, we will drive increased operating leverage in order to enter 2023 with revenues and non-GAAP EPS growing at over 20%. We are intently focused on taking our best-in-class checkout experiences to even greater heights. Through our investments, we are making it faster and easier to check out with some of the highest authorization rates in our history. Today, more than 70% of the top North American and European retailers, including more than 80% of the top U.S. retailers, except PayPal or Venmo at checkout. PayPal is not even arguably. They are the biggest dog at the water bowl. They're the largest tree on the Philippine beaches. They are massive. And their focus in 2022 is to focus on engagement since they do carry a presence with 70% of all retailers in the U.S. and in Europe. They are focusing on engagement to create the best customer experience in their checkout process. And with that, they could effectively see a 20% growth heading into 2023. I think this is a very bold, confident, but achievable goal for PayPal. And this is one of those aspects where it would seem to be the case that these companies are looking for stability. They're not looking for growth. They are looking for stability. PayPal is focusing on their existing operation and making it better, making it faster, making it more confident, making everything more seamless 
And with that, they see a 20% growth. However, however, there was an analyst at Wolf Research that inquired about this growth and effectively how their take rate, their conversion of users, essentially, they projected it to be between 15 and 17%, which analysts thought that this was a little bit low. So the question to John Rainey, the CFO, why is this take rate a little bit, you know, is it low or is it high? And how can analysts think about this take rate? Um, as I noted in my prepared remarks, um, we've seen weakness around spending in our lower income cohorts. And, you know, imagine for us, it, it's um, the, the percentage of our user base is, is pretty similar to what you see just like in the U.S. overall. So it is a large percentage of our user base. And this was a cohort that certainly benefited from stimulus in prior periods earlier this year. And we're seeing the effects of inflationary pricing around that where there's a more elastic demand curve around that. So PayPal's user base is predominantly the younger generation and the younger generation not having as much money and using government stimulus funds to stimulate spending, their spending habits. That is a large portion of PayPal's user base. And so with this kind of deflated, stagnated economy, that is where they are throwing caution to their growth expectations on revenue. How much will they actually generate if most of their user base is younger and if these younger users are not making as much money, if they don't have as much money, that could indeed affect revenue guidelines, revenue expectations. So PayPal has, they have a lot of work ahead of them. And it is, that is, that is what we should be following over the course of the next year. Are they executing on this plan? And is that translating into results? And it does seem to be the case that as I am trying to bring to you stability. So you have predictability. These companies, or at least specifically PayPal, is going into a more stable mode of execution of operations. So let's now pivot again. Let's look at another financial company who has reported earnings, who is a part of the dedicated lane fund, and that is Ally. Ally Financial, led by Jeff Brown, CEO, and also on the call, on the earnings call, was Jennifer LeClaire. And let's start with Jeff Brown and informing us about what the consumer auto origination looked like in 2021, as well as what they're expecting in 2022. Here's Jeff Brown. Looking at auto results, our dealer network expanded for the 12th straight year in 2021, generating 46.3 billion of originations, our highest level since the early 2000s, sourced from a record 13 million decision applications. This was our fourth consecutive year of origination yields above 7%, 
demonstrating our strong competitive position, disciplined underwriting, and leading dealer and customer service capabilities. Across our consumer and commercial portfolios, credit remains very strong, supported by robust job prospects, ongoing wage expansion, and the strongest customer balance sheets observed in decades, all of which help mitigate inflationary dynamics. While the pace of credit normalization remains up for debate, we've taken a balanced approach in our reserve process under a view that normalization will occur gradually over the next two years. So Mr. Brown highlighting that they have reached a record high of $46.3 billion in consumer auto originations, which is up 32% year over year, based off of 13 million applicants. This is a very healthy business. And mind you, Ally Financial is the number one lender in the prime space. There was a question that came from an analyst by the name of Ryan Nash of Goldman Sachs. And Jeff Brown and Jennifer LeClaire, as well as Ally, are forecasting a 16 to 18% year-over-year return consistently for the next one to two years. Ryan Nash inquires further about this. You know, you outlined in the slides 16 to 18 plus percent returns in 2022 and the medium term, I think Jen said two to three years and beyond. And I wanted to maybe focus on the plus. So can you maybe just talk about, you know, some of the assumptions that are underlying, maybe give us a little bit more color and and, and maybe what are some of the sources of upside that we could see over the next one to two years that are not baked into the 16 to 18? I mean, you look at our levels of reserves relative to the levels of loss expectations, and I think our guidance on on credit. I think you see we've taken a um, a very pragmatic and gradual normalization to credit, but that would be certainly a big one. Um, and then obviously, you know, used car prices. I think as Jen is is guided, we we, we see them within our financial plan as moderating, but. I think if you look at current trends, you look at the environment, I mean, used car prices are still really strong. And as Jen pointed out, we are seeing some very modest uptick in inventory levels. But, I, I, you know, our outlook, I think, this year is a really robust used car market. So, I mean, those are a couple. Jen, Jen's obviously got all the details behind it, but we feel really good about the outlook. Yeah, JB, I think you nailed it. The only thing I would add is, is just around gains in, in our insurance portfolio, we've been able to optimize um, our equity market activity and drive outside gains. And so that potentially, Ryan, could be another area of, of upside. But I think you're asking the right question. I think there's an asymmetric uh, you know, bias here towards uh, outperforming the 16 to 18 plus percent. And it's, it's path of NCOs, reserves, it's used vehicle pricing that JB hit on, plus our ability to generate gains. So Ally is very, they're poised to maintain their existing operation at a pretty steady growth. If we go back to what PayPal was targeting for 2022, again, they're targeting 20% of revenue growth. Here, Ally is targeting 16 to 18% revenue growth. One is a financial tech company. 
The other ally earnings or ally financial is more of your uh, you know, traditional bank finance lender. Okay, so let's go on. Let's pivot again. Let's look at mm, Tesla. You know, I don't care so much, to be honest, about Tesla. I care more that Elon Musk is the head of Tesla. You remove Elon Musk, and will Tesla be just as great? Maybe. They'll be good. They'll, they're, they have secured their place in history, or they've secured their place in the future. But will they be great after an Elon Musk? Eh, hard to see that. Anyhow, let's hear from Elon Musk as he talks about what we can expect in the immediate future by referencing the product roadmap. Let's see. So on the, on the product roadmap front, there's, there's quite a lot to talk about. I'm not going to go through every sort of thing that we're working on because I think a lot of them deserve uh, product launches of their own uh, as opposed to uh, a few minutes on an earnings call. Um, so I'll talk kind of at a high level. The, the fundamental focus of Tesla this year is scaling output. Uh, so um, you know, both last year and this year, if we were to introduce new vehicles, um, our total vehicle output would decrease. This is a very important point that I think people do not a lot of people do not understand. Um, so last year, we spent a lot of engineering and management resources uh, solving supply chain issues, uh, rewriting code, changing out chips, reducing the number of chips we need. That was chip, chip drama central. Um, and there were not the, that was not the only supply chain issue. So there was just hundreds of, of, of things. Um, and as a result, we were able to grow almost 90% while uh, I believe almost every other manufacturer contracted last year. So that, that, that's a good result. Um, uh, but but we, if, if we had introduced, say, a new car last year, uh, we would, our total vehicle output was, would have been the same because of the constraints, uh, the chips constraints particularly. So if, if we'd actually introduced an additional product, uh, that, would, it, that would then uh, require a bunch of attention and resources uh, on that increased complexity of, of the additional product, resulting in fewer vehicles actually being delivered. And the same is true of this year. So we will not be uh, introducing new vehicle models uh, this year. It would not make any sense because um, we will still be past constrained. We, we will, uh, however, do a lot of engineering and tooling and whatnot to create those vehicles as uh, the Cybertruck, Semi, Roadster, um, uh, Optimus, um, and, um, and be ready to bring those to production, hopefully next year. See, this is the thing that is most impressive about Tesla and Elon Musk together. In this chip crisis that occurred last year, they had to pivot in their, I'm saying pivot a lot in this episode, but they had to pivot a lot in their duties. The, the staff and the company 
had to pivot in order to accommodate this chip shortage and start to recode the cars. I mean, that takes away a lot of effort and attention into newer products, newer development. However, as as the chip issue starts to abate, and while they will continue to make engineering and technology uh, improvements, coding improvements, as that starts to abate, that just means that their current team of engineers and developers, software developers, will continue to build out and learn from this chip shortage as they build out the Cybertruck and other products. So then Tony Sakagoni, Sakunagi, Sakunagi, Tony Sakunagi from Bernstein. Tony is inquiring about how they and the rest of the investing community can think about what the future revenue future revenues will be of Tesla, especially given the fact that if you have your existing resources that are devoted to retooling, recoding existing cars, and you're also keeping a, you know, an arm's length to some of the future products, what does future revenue then look like? And here is Elon to address this question. Elon, I was wondering if I could just follow up and ask you, you, you talked about your product roadmap and, and also your goal to keep growing at, at 50% per year or better. Um, that would put you at 3.2 million vehicles and or more in 2024. Um, and I, I think you made reference to Cybertruck, you know, maybe being 250,000 vehicles. Um, if, if there is no $25,000 vehicle being worked on, is it... <laughs> really realistic to think that you can sell more than 3 million vehicles with two very high volume cars and Cybertruck in 2024? Or how, how, how do we how do we think about that? Or, or what else is missing in that equation? Yeah, I mean, it is apparent from the questions that the, the, gravi the gravity of full self-driving is not um, is not fully appreciated. You know, if, if an asset has five times more utilization than the in fact, it's like it's like dividing the cost of that asset by five. So if you have a fifty thousand dollar car, it's like having a ten thousand dollar car all of a sudden. But but maybe better better than that because still you don't need anyone to drive. So the person can be engaged in productivity or amusement instead of having to, you know, onerously drive through traffic. You know, I just love how he spun that. How Elon spun that. He's basically saying that you know rather than looking at the unit sales of cars think of these cars as this utilization in which one car equals one utilization. But if you think of cars in the way Elon does, a car is no longer just a car, but it serves as many different purposes, especially if you remove the ability for someone to drive and you have something of a autonomous driving technology incorporated such that now when you're in the car, you can do other things, work, and effectively make money. You can read, you could just do other things. And so therefore now this asset that was once known as, you know, equals one utilization credit, this one asset equals five utilization credits. And so looking at cars in that sense, 
can indicate that if you, you know, it indicates to Elon that we shouldn't look at revenue purely based on unit sales, but rather what is the unit sales with an X factor of this idea of utilization of what else we can do in the car, of what else Tesla can provide in the car to, you know, some sort of app store that's obviously been talked about, but that's the whole concept here of this utilization. Now, I'm going to take a quick break. I will come back and I will then read to you BlackRock's CEO, Larry Fink, and his 2022 letter to CEOs, The Power of Capitalism. And we'll read most of it verbatim right after the break here. The Power of Capitalism by Larry Fink, written mid-January right before their earnings call. Dear CEO, each year I make it a priority to write to you on behalf of BlackRock's clients who are shareholders in your company. The majority of our clients are investing to finance retirement. Their time horizons can span decades. The financial security we seek to help our clients achieve is not created overnight. It is a long-term endeavor, and we take long-term approaches. That is why, for the past decade, I have written to you as CEOs and chairs of the companies our clients are invested in. I write these letters as a fiduciary for our clients who entrust us to manage their assets, to highlight the themes that I believe are vital to driving durable, long-term returns and to helping them reach their goals. When my partners and I founded BlackRock as a startup 34 years ago, I had no experience running a company. Over the past three decades, I've had the opportunity to talk with countless CEOs and to learn what distinguishes truly great companies. Time and time again, what they all share is that they have a clear sense of purpose, consistent values, and crucially, they recognize the importance of engaging with and delivering For their key stakeholders. This is the foundation of stakeholder capitalism. Stakeholder capitalism is not about politics. It is not a social or ideological agenda. It is not woke. That's in quotations. It is capitalism driven by mutually beneficial relationships between you and the employees, customers, suppliers, and communities your company relies on to prosper. This is the power of capitalism. In today's globally interconnected world, a company must create value for and be valued by its full range of stakeholders in order to deliver long-term value for its shareholders. It is through effective stakeholder capitalism that capital is efficiently allocated. Companies achieve durable profitability and value is created and sustained over the long term. Make no mistake, the fair pursuit of profit is still what animates markets, and long-term profitability is the measure by which markets will ultimately determine your company's success. At the foundation of capitalism is the process of constant reinvention, how companies must continually evolve as the world around them changes or risk being replaced by new competitors. The pandemic has turbocharged an evolution in the operating environment for virtually every company. It's changing how people work, 
and how consumers buy. It's creating new businesses and destroying others. Most notably, it's dramatically accelerating how technology is reshaping life and business. Innovative companies looking to adapt to this environment have easier access to capital to realize their visions than ever before, and the relationship between a company, its employees, and the society is being redefined. COVID-19 has also deepened the erosion of trust in traditional institutions and exacerbated polarization in many Western societies. This polarization presents a host of new challenges for CEOs. Political activists or the media may politicize things your company does. They may hijack your brand to advance their own agenda. In this environment, facts themselves are frequently in dispute, but businesses have an opportunity to lead. Employees are increasingly looking to their employer as the most trusted, competent, and ethical source of information, more so than government, the media, and NGOs. That is why your voice is more important than ever. It's never been more essential for CEOs to have a consistent voice, a clear purpose, a coherent strategy, and a long-term view. Your company's purpose is its North Star in this tumultuous environment. The stakeholders your company relies upon to deliver profits for shareholders need to hear from you directly. They need to be engaged and they need to be inspired by you. They don't want to hear us as CEOs opine on every issue of the day, but they do need to know where we stand on the societal issues intrinsic to our company's long-term success. Putting your company's purpose at the foundation of your relationships with your stakeholders is critical to long-term success. Employees need to understand and connect with your purpose, and when they do, they can be your staunchest advocates. Customers want to see and hear what you stand for as they increasingly look to do business with companies that share their values. And shareholders need to understand the guiding principle driving your vision and mission. They will be more likely to support you in difficult times if they have a clear understanding of your strategy and what is behind it. That was the introduction to Larry Fink's letter to, to the CEOs entitled The Power of Capitalism. Let's go on to chapter two, of which there are a total of five chapters. This is chapter two, entitled A New World of Work. No relationship has been changed more by the pandemic than the one between employers and employees. The quit rate in the U.S. and the U.K. is at historic highs, and in the U.S. we are seeing some of the highest wage growth in decades. Workers seizing new opportunities is a good thing. It demonstrates their confidence in a growing economy. While turnover and rising pay are not a feature of every region or sector, employees across the globe are looking for more from their employer, including more flexibility and more meaningful work. As companies rebuild themselves coming out of the pandemic, CEOs face a profoundly different paradigm than we are used to. Companies expected workers to come to the office five days a week. 
mental health was rarely rarely discussed in the work, work workplace, and wages for those on the low and middle incomes barely grew. That world is gone. Workers demanding more from their employers is an essential feature of effective capitalism. It drives prosperity and creates a more competitive landscape for talent, pushing companies to create better, more innovative environments for their employees, actions that will help them achieve greater profits for their shareholders. Companies that deliver are reaping the rewards. Our research shows that companies who forge strong bonds with their employees have seen lower levels of turnover and higher returns through the pandemic. Companies not adjusting to this new reality and responding to their workers do so at their own peril. Turnover drives up expenses, drives down productivity, and erodes culture and corporate memory. CEOs need to be asking themselves whether they are creating an environment that helps them compete for talent. At BlackRock, we are doing the same, working with our own employees to navigate this new world of work. Creating the environment is more complex than ever and reaches beyond issues of pay and flexibility. In addition to upending our relationship with where we physically work, the pandemic has also shown a light on issues like racial equity, childcare, and mental health, and revealed the gap between generational expectations at work. These themes are now center stage for CEOs who must be thoughtful about how they use their voice and connect on social issues important to their employees. Those who show humility and stay grounded in their purpose are more likely to build a kind of bond that endures the span of someone's career. At BlackRock, we want to understand how this trend is impacting your industry and your company. What are you doing to deepen the bond with your employees? How are you ensuring that employees of all backgrounds feel safe enough to maximize their creativity, innovation, and productivity? How are you ensuring your board has the right to oversee, has the right oversight of these critical issues? Where and how we will work will never be the same as it was. How is your company's culture adapting to this new world? Chapter 3. New Sources of Capital Fueling Market Disruption New Sources of Capital Fueling Market Disruption Over the past four decades, we have seen an explosion in the availability of capital. Today, global financial assets total $400 trillion. This exponential growth brings with it risks and opportunities for investors and companies alike, and it means that banks alone are no longer the gatekeepers to funding. Young, innovative companies have never had easier access to capital. Never has there been more money available for new ideas to become a reality. This is fueling a dynamic landscape of innovation. It means that virtually every sector has an abundance of disruptive startups trying to topple market leaders. CEOs of established companies need to understand this changing landscape and the diversity of available capital if they want to stay competitive in the face of smaller, more nimble businesses. BlackRock wants to see the companies we invest in for our clients evolve and grow so that they generate attractive returns for decades to come. As long-term investors, we are committed to working with companies from all industries, but we too must be nimble and ensure our clients' assets are invested 
consistent with their goals in the most dynamic companies, whether startups or established players, with the best chances at exceeding over time. As capitalists and as stewards, that's our job. I believe in capitalism's ability to help individuals achieve better futures, to drive innovation, to build resilient economies, and to solve some of, some of our most intractable challenges. Capital markets have allowed companies and countries to flourish, but access to capital is not a right. It is a privilege, and the duty to attract that capital in a responsible and sustainable way lies with you. Chapter 4, Capitalism and Sustainability Most stakeholders, from shareholders to employees to customers to communities and regulators, now expect companies to play a role in decarbonizing the global economy. Few things will impact capital allocation decisions, and thereby the long-term value of your company, more than how effectively you navigate the global energy transition in the years ahead. It's been two years since I wrote that climate risk is investment risk, and in that short period, we have seen a tectonic shift of capital. Sustainable investments have now reached $4 trillion. Actions and ambitions towards decarbonization have also increased. This is just the beginning. The tectonic shift towards sustainable investing is still accelerating. Whether it is capital being deployed into new ventures focused on energy innovation or capital transferring from traditional indexes into more customized portfolios and products, we will see more money in motion. Every company and every industry will be transformed by the transition to a net zero world. The question is, will you lead or will you be led? In a few short years, we have watched all innovators reimagine the auto industry, and today every car manufacturer is racing toward an electric future. The auto industry, however, is merely on the leading edge. Every sector will be transformed by new, sustainable technology. Engineers and scientists are working around the clock on how to decarbonize cement, steel, and plastics, shipping, trucking, and aviation, agriculture, energy, and construction. I believe the decarbonizing of the global economy is going to create the greatest investment opportunity of our lifetime. It will also leave behind the companies that don't adapt, regardless of what industry they are in. And just as some companies risk being left behind, so do cities and countries that don't plan for the future. They risk losing jobs, even as others place gain on them. The decarbonization of the economy will be accompanied by enormous job creation for those that engage in the necessary long-term planning. The next 1,000 unicorns won't be search engines or social media companies. They'll be sustainable, scalable innovators, Startups that help the world decarbonize and make the energy transition affordable for all consumers. We need to be honest about the fact that green products often come at a higher cost today. Bringing down this green premium will be essential for an orderly and just transition. With the unprecedented amount of capital looking for new ideas, incumbents need to be clear about their pathway succeeding in a net zero economy. And it's not just startups that can and will disrupt industries. Bold incumbents can and must do it too. Indeed, many incumbents have an advantage in capital, market knowledge, and technical expertise 
on the global scale required for the disruption ahead. Our question to these companies is, what are you doing to disrupt your business? How are you preparing for and participating in the net zero transition? As your industry gets transformed by the energy transition, will you go the way of the dodo or will you be a phoenix? We focus on sustainability not because we're environmentalists, but because we are capitalists and fiduciaries to our clients. That requires understanding how companies are adjusting their businesses for the massive changes the economy is undergoing. As part of that focus, we are asking companies to set short, medium, and long-term targets for greenhouse gas reductions. These targets and the quality of plans to meet them are critical to the long-term economic interest of your shareholders. It's also why we see we ask you to issue reports consistent with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD, that is Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, because we believe these are essential tools for understanding a company's ability to adapt for the future. The transition to net zero is already uneven, with different parts of the global economy moving at different speeds. It will not happen overnight. We need to pass through shades of brown to shades of green. For example, to ensure continuity of affordable energy supplies during the transition, traditional fossil fuels like natural gas will play an important role both for power generation and heating in certain regions, as well as for the production of hydrogen. The pace of change will be very different in developing and developed countries, but all markets will require unprecedented investment in decarbonization technology. We need, to tra- we need transformative discoveries on a level with the electric light bulb, and we need to foster investment in them so that they are scalable and affordable. As we pursue these ambitious goals, which will take time, governments and companies must ensure that people continue to have access to reliable and affordable energy sources. This is the only way we will create a green economy that is fair and just and avoid societal discord. And any plan that focuses solely on limiting supply and fails to address demand for hydrocarbons will drive up energy prices for those who can least afford it, resulting in greater polarization around climate change and eroding progress. Divesting from entire sectors or simply passing carbon-intensive assets from public markets to private markets will not get the world to net zero. And BlackRock does not pursue divestment from oil and gas companies as a policy. We do have some clients who choose to divest their assets, while other clients reject that approach. Foresighted companies across a wide range of carbon-intensive sectors are transforming their businesses, and their actions are a critical part of decarbonization. We believe the companies leading the transition present a vital investment opportunity for our clients and driving capital towards these phoenixes will be essential to achieving a net zero world. Capitalism has the power to to shape society and act as a powerful catalyst for change. But businesses can't do this alone, and they cannot be the climate police. That will not be a good outcome for society. We need governments to provide clear pathways and a consistent taxonomy for sustainability policy, regulation, and disclosure across markets. They must also support communities affected by the transition 
help catalyze capital for the emerging markets, and invest in the innovation and technology that will be essential to decarbonizing the global economy. It was the partnership between government and the private sector that led to the development of COVID-19 vaccines in record time. When we harness the power of both the public and private sectors, we can achieve truly incredible things. This is what we must do to get to net zero. Chapter 5, the last chapter, Empowering Clients with Choice on ESG Votes. Stakeholder capitalism is all about delivering long-term, durable returns for shareholders, and transparency around your company's planning for a net-zero world is an important element of that. But it's just one of many disclosures we and other investors ask companies to make. As stewards of our clients' capital, we ask businesses to demonstrate how they're going to deliver on their responsibility to shareholders including through sound environmental, social, and governance practices and policies. In 2018, I wrote that we would double the size of our stewardship team, and it remains the largest in the industry. We've built this team so we can understand your company's progress throughout the year, not just during proxy season. It's up to you to chart your own course and to tell us how you're moving forward. We seek to understand the full range of issues that you face, not just the ones on the ballot, and that includes your long-term strategy. Just as other stakeholders are adjusting their relationships with companies, many people are rethinking their relationships with companies as shareholders. We see a growing interest among shareholders, including among our own clients, in the corporate governance of public companies. That is why we're pursuing an initiative to use technology to give more of our clients the option to have a say in how proxy votes are cast at companies where their money is invested. We now offer this option to certain institutional clients, including pension funds that support 60 million people. We are working to expand that universe. We are committed to a future where every investor, every individual investor, can have the option to participate in the proxy voting process if they choose. We know there are significant regulatory and logistical hurdles to achieving this today, but we believe this could bring more democracy and more voices to capitalism. Every investor deserves the right to be heard. We will continue to pursue innovation and work with other market participants and, regula and regulators to help advance this vision toward reality. Of course, many corporate leaders are responsible for overseeing equity assets, whether through employee pension funds, corporate treasury accounts, or other investments your company makes. I encourage you to ask that your asset manager gives you the opportunity to participate in the proxy voting process more directly. BlackRock's investment stewardship, stewardship team remains core to our fiduciary approach, and many of our clients prefer that the team continues to engage and execute voting on their behalf. But fundamentally, clients should at least be given the choice and chance to participate in voting more directly. And this is the conclusion here. Our conviction at BlackRock is that companies perform better when they are deliberate about their role in society and act in the interests of their employees, customers, communities, and their shareholders. However, we also believe that there is still much to learn about how a company's relationship with stakeholders impacts long-term value. That is why we are launching a Center for Stakeholder Capitalism to create a forum for research, dialogue, and debate. 
It will help us to further explore the relationships between companies and their stakeholders and between stakeholder engagement and shareholder value. We will bring together leading CEOs, investors, policy experts, and academics to share their experience and deliver their insights. Delivering on the competing interests of a company's many divergent stakeholders is not easy. As a CEO, I know this firsthand. In this polarized world, CEOs will invariably have one set of stakeholders demanding that we do one thing, while another set of stakeholders demand that we do just the opposite. That is why it is important that is why it is more important than ever that your company and its management be guided by its purpose. If you stay true to your company's purpose and focus on the long term while adapting to this new world around us, you will deliver durable returns for shareholders and help realize the power of capitalism for all. Sincerely, Larry Fink. This concludes part one of quarter four earnings. Stay tuned for next week as there will be some more companies that I will be covering on their earnings call as these are all companies part of the dedicated lane fund. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Whisker Weekly. Wisco Weekly is providing this information for educational purposes only. We are not providing legal, accounting, or financial advisory services, and this is not a solicitation or recommendation to buy or sell any stocks, options, or other financial instruments or investments. Examples that address specific assets, stocks, options or other financial instrument transactions are for illustrative purposes only and may not represent specific trades or transactions that we have conducted. In fact, we may use examples that are different or the opposite of transactions we have conducted or positions we hold. This site and any information or training therein is also not intended as a solicitation for any future relationship, business or otherwise between the members or participants and the moderators. No express or implied warranties are being made with respect to these services and products. All investing and trading in the securities market involves risk. Any decisions to place trades in the financial markets, including trading in stock or options or other financial instruments, is a personal decision that should only be made after thorough research, including a personal risk and financial assessment, and the engagement of professional assistance to the extent you believe necessary. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly. Wisco Weekly is part of the podcast channel, Not Your Father's Economy, exclusively on Apple Podcasts. Consider becoming a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Economy, where you can receive bonus episodes, ad-free episodes that are intended to give you actionable insight to help you professionally and personally. Become a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Podcast for just $8.49 a month or $94 for the year, and you can cancel anytime. Also, please consider giving Wisco Weekly a rating and review. It's much appreciated. Thanks for tuning in.